Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Offshore Insights Podcast, where we share captivating individuals and stories connected by water. I'm your host, Evan Luth. We're stoked you could join us today, and I hope you enjoy your listening experience. Welcome, Timbo. Thanks, Thanks for joining us on the Offshore Insights Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, I'm stoked you could be here, and um, it's cool to sit literally where we're sitting right now on this trail and kind of have some old neighborhood roots for this conversation, yeah. since uh, these are our stomping grounds. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to bring you in to talk a little bit about the work you've been doing, and um, I think that you're somebody who can speak to the translation between the, the pleasures and lifestyle that we enjoy as surfers and, you know, outdoor enthusiasts and stuff like that, but also you're on the scientific side of it, you know, and a lot of your stuff is very research driven. And it, that's just something I think is important for us to keep in mind when we're appreciating these resources we have. And, um, so you, I guess, go ahead and just introduce yourself for us by title and whatever. Oh yeah. Yeah. So my name is Timbo Stillinger and I have a, I'm a master's degree right now and I'm a PhD candidate at the moment also. Hopefully I'll be getting my PhD within the next six to 12 months. Nice. And yeah, while I'm doing that, I also work for a local nonprofit here in Encinitas called the San Alejo Lagoon Conservancy and I am their scientific research director and a lot of the work I do there focuses on the scientific side of kind of coastal wetland conservation. And our organization has been here since the mid-80s. And um, over that time, they've kind of expanded a lot. And now we're involved with a really big project happening here, which is with Caltrans doing this big freeway widening project that's also doing a big restoration of the lagoon. So I'm in charge of a lot of the scientific uh, analysis that goes along with that. Both to make sure that we're restoring this this wetland and also just to kind of start creating these long-term databases of different sorts of scientific information that we can use in the future to kind of help track and see how our local resources are doing as like the climate changes and sea level rises and people live here and play here and work here and it's kind of an interesting urban natural environment interface that we live in right like the ocean right there and then all this development and then this watershed with kind of still some natural areas in it and so it's a really cool spot to do science yeah (laughs) Yeah. it sure is yeah a lot of yeah, you got your fingers in a lot of pies because yeah. of the location, it sounds like. Um, and your PhD program is in what exactly? It's in water resource management okay. um, and more broadly environmental science and management. And the main focus of it is kind of figuring out kind of environmental problems that need solutions um, and have that kind of be the goal that focuses your research. So right. choosing kind of applied topics to think about sure. that then you both kind of learn new science, scientific you get a greater scientific understanding of the topic, but an equal benefit is you've potentially solved a problem that actually has like a real-world impact on people's lives. Right. So a lot right. of the stuff for that that I work on is a lot of water supply forecasting yeah. um, and figuring out ways to kind of figure out how much surface water we have, where it is, yeah. if it's in the snow, when it's going to melt, where it's going to go. Yeah, that, yeah, that was it. a part of your emphasis in your program, right? Yep. I mean, when I was reading about what you've been doing, it's focusing on, on the snowpack and, and off the glacial melt and snow melt. Yeah. Um, it sounds like, obviously, I, I don't know, can you just give us a breakdown of, of how that system works in general and why you're looking at that specifically? Yeah, so in California, about 
up to 70% of our water supply actually starts to snow in the mountains each winter. And so California is very dependent on snow melt every year to supply the vast majority of uh, urban water supply and agricultural water supply. And California is also pretty unique in that the magnitude of snowfall we get each year can vary a lot. Mm-hmm. So some years are really dry and then some years are really wet. And California doesn't really have a lot of storage capacity to hold that water. So even if we have a really wet year, we don't have an ability to really hold a lot of that water for the following year. So every year we kind of are in the same situation of needing a really good picture of how much water we have and then uh, managing it as best we can to use it. Right. And so the snow, in California, the snowpack ties in even like here to Encinitas and that, um, like a lot of our water comes from the Colorado River which is fed by snowmelt in the Colorado Rockies. And then another big portion of our water supply comes from uh, snow that is in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So we're using a lot of water here that was probably snow like right. a few months ago. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So. And so when you're doing those projects, um, what does that look like tangibly? Like, what are you actually doing? You're, you're doing some field research, basically, up in the mountains. Yeah, so California is cool in that we have a lot of uh, ground data. So there's stations that have been in place since the 1930s to measure the snowpack. So wow. it's actually one of the better measured spots in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of good ground data. Um, and then we also use satellites to, that take pictures of the Earth every day mm-hmm. to map the extent of the snowpack and try and use some some tools on computers to figure out how much water might be in the snow in yeah. that snowpack. Um, and so California is nice because we have all this ground data to do it with, and then we have these satellite-based tools to also use. Um, and it's kind of an area where a lot of the scientific researchers, they use it to learn as much as they can about how we can better predict runoff. Um, and then we use those tools a lot in Asia. So okay. in High Mountain Asia, kind of going from like Pakistan, Afghanistan, Bhutan, Nepal, China, that whole area over there, the Himalayas, has a very similar setup where it snows a whole bunch in the winter, and that snow s- falls and sits in snow, and then it melts in the spring, and that's kind of the water supply each year for those people. Um, but they don't have any sort of um, ground-based measurements for knowing like how much water they're going to get. So we try and develop tools here that then work over there where you don't need to go out and like dig holes in the snow. You can right. just use the satellite information to get at least a general picture of like, okay, it's going to be a wet year. Okay, yeah. it's going to be a dry year. So that kind of scale. And it's kind of a, a combination or uh, a joint effort between the satellite imagery and then the on-the-ground observations, right? I mean, yeah. Obviously, satellites are limited in certain capacities, I would assume, in terms of visuals and stuff like that. Yeah, so a lot of the satellites, you can just see the surface. So, like, you can see the snowpack, and you can see how much area it's covering, but you don't really know how deep it is. And so you can see, like, it could be a foot deep or 20 feet deep. There's a very different amount of water in it. Um, So we've developed, after doing it for, like, years and years and years, you kind of start, you can use some other tools to start to kind of figure out how deep it might be. Um, And then you can use that to inform the people who actually manage the water in those areas. Right. Where you basically, the people who manage the reservoirs are like, okay, this is kind of similar to 1975. Or uh-huh. This is the year is kind of similar to like 94 or 93. Right. And then they're like, okay, that's enough. I know like kind of what I need to do to like either hold back a little extra water for a few months or let it flow out. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the area where we do it in, but a lot of the like development is like here in California um, where we do have a really well kind of managed and monitored system, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. So sure. it's kind of a cool spot to work. Sure. 
And to your point about um, you know the impacts of this information and this research in terms of future planning and stuff like that for you know uh, whatever infrastructure and industry. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think very few people, including myself, until I was reading some of what you've been working on, realized that you know I think it's what you said: it's forty percent of the world's population gets their drinking water from this uh, mountain yeah. runoff, basically. Yep. And that's pretty significant on a global scale, and obviously some areas more than others too. But I guess what I'm wondering is, to your point about the impacts it has for planning and on, and on larger populations, um, what are some of the like value points or beneficial possible applications that this work has that motivate you to do what you're doing in terms of social yeah. benefits or otherwise? So I think probably the best example was in, uh, in 2011, there was a really, really big drought in Afghanistan. And the way that the, they realized there was a drought is in September, when all the farmers had planted their crops for the year, the crops failed because not enough water came out of the streams to grow the crops. Right. And so the crop failed in September, and then they got an early snowfall in October, which basically closed off all the roads and all the infrastructure to get to these villages. And there was a pretty serious kind of humanitarian crisis where you had a, millions of people with very little food and no ability to, like, do anything kind of for a while. Sure. And a lot of the tools and techniques that we work on could have potentially identified the fact that there was going to be a drought in, say, in April. So they found out in September. We could have told them in April or May. Right. And so that's, like, one of the biggest things that I see is that, okay, you can maybe provide the information to the people who then go and do the humanitarian work, like, up to maybe six months earlier than they do now. Yeah. And kind of get the mechanisms rolling that can then kind of prevent like once the crops fail it's too late but some of our tools and stuff it's like okay cool like there is a it's literally could change the lives of millions of people <laughs> right Just even a few months of heads up warning yeah. for when stuff's going to happen yeah for so sure that, that's one of the bigger things that kind of motivates me right um yeah, and even on a governmental level, just the allocation of resources, yeah. budgeting, mm -hmm. you know, timelines for the plans and all that stuff. Yeah. Seems like it'd be impacted too. Exactly. Yeah. And in California it's not so dire, but that there is a really interesting question about well like how much money and effort should we allocate to forecasting water supply? And is that like a constant every year should we allocate the same amount or right. depending on what we know in the current year, there's sometimes you should maybe spend more or less to go about doing that. Yeah. So some of the work I work on too is trying to kind of calculate the economic value of forecasts and how much you should allocate that year to yeah. basically being a little more case sensitive yep. with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Right. Well and I mean, you know, even though there's a lot more information these days than in the past for to educate us and, and about environmental sustainability, um, what role we play in that you know system and all that stuff. But it seems like there's still, or the majority of people at least who live in developing nations, or I'm sorry, developed nations rather, have a bit of a disconnect between the role that they play in this integrated system. And I guess I'm wondering if you have any ideas about why you think there's still this remaining kind of cognitive dissonance between people and the impacts that they have, but also whatever just how it yeah. can help you know yeah. like be a little bit more proactive you know and, and just more aware so I think water is a really good example of that because literally all you have to do is turn your tap on and water comes out so you, most people really haven't thought about it because right. we've created a society where you don't need to think about a lot of those things no you never question if that's good yeah it's like oh water. I just turn the tap on and water comes out right. it's like well where did that water come from how, there's a really long and interesting story behind how it got into your right. faucet and um yeah, it's, there's no, it's, 
people just kind of use it as if it's just kind of there for them all the time. And so I think, like, in terms of, like, using resources, water's a really good example of it's just, it's always been really cheap, really easy to get, relatively, and so we just kind of, luckily, are not very efficient with how we use it. (laughs) So there is, like, a lot we can do to use less and conserve, especially with, like, we don't have as much in the future in California with droughts and stuff. Right. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of a a difficult but easy problem to work on because there is definitely room for improvement so yeah yeah and and I think probably just in general you know encouraging people to ask that question yeah where is this resource coming yeah and we've had some yeah and we had these really big droughts the last few years in California before we had that big winter last year and they actually enacted a lot of legislation in California to like force urban water districts to use less water awesome and um we did a study on it like three years ago, and pretty much most districts met their their conservation targets, which were pretty big, like up to 25% reductions wow. in water use, which That's just by awesome. like letting people know they needed to do a few simple things, sure. like they're able to cut down water use by up to 25% is wow. pretty impressive. Yeah. But it also kind of goes to show you like, okay, well, like, were you really using all that water or was it just kind of like you weren't caring about sure sure wondering? yeah weren't caring about how well and even it. on like an anecdotal level there's you know you got kind of the interfacing of uh corporations in the market starting to kind of make that a part of their campaigns too i'm, I'm thinking of colgate specifically doing their whole you know turn the faucet off and brush your teeth and stuff yeah. like that it seems like it's nice that that's finally becoming an integral part to the messaging you know that yeah. even the consumer market facing side of things is, is becoming aware and, and yeah. taking that seriously it's yeah, great. shows a little social responsibility and accountability. Hopefully, at least yeah, on their part. Totally. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so another component of your efforts uh, are that you've done been doing a lot of work, like you said, with the San Alejo Conservancy, and it looked like you focused mostly on, uh, you know, the. Con- uh, sorry, you were. I'm referencing this piece you were you had listed as a resource here. So managing the three wildlife habitat preserves in the six easement locations. Uh, can you just tell me a little bit about that work specifically that you've been... Yeah, so the San Alejo Lagoon is a public resource for people of California, and it's co-owned currently by the State of California Department of Fish and Wildlife, mm-hmm. and then the County of San Diego, and then us, the San Alejo Lagoon Conservancy. So there's two kind of big chunks of the preserve that are managed, they're owned by the state and the county, um, and then we are kind of the... Uh, we take care of all the easements that are around the reserve, and then we've also used fundraising over the years to purchase up select parcels or been gifted parcels around the reserve that kind of create a buffer buffer space sure. for the reserve for um, all the wildlife and all the flora and fauna that we have living in there. And so the county and the state are pretty hands-off in the environmental management of it, so they focus more on, like, the trails and, like, visitors coming in and out mm-hmm. and... Um, making sure that it just like stays a reserve and then a lot of the work that we focus on is okay if we start thinking of this wetland as an integral part of this entire watershed what sorts of uh, action should we take to kind of preserve this space and then enhance it so it's better for future generations right and so a lot of the stuff we do is we make sure basically all these conservation easements stay conservation easements so no one's building stuff on them that they're not supposed to Mm -hmm. and then a big part of what we do is we do a lot of invasive plant control which is a lot of weeds that have invaded california from other areas that if left unchecked will pretty much just take over the wildland spaces yeah this is usually a big problem especially because a lot of them end up actually being more um fire they're like basically 
start fires a lot easier and they're really yeah. flammable. Um, and then they also just kind of decimate the local ecosystem. Sure, all the endemic species. Yeah, so for like on. the last oh, 12 or 13 years now, we've had a pretty intensive program where we have mapped the whole North County area, which is called like the Carlsbad Hydrologic Unit, which is basically if you're, if you're driving up through, southern, uh, through San Diego, you go past like San Diego Lagoon, San Alejo Lagoon, Batiquitos Lagoon, Buena Vista Lagoon, all those lagoons, all the area of North County that drains into those lagoons. Yeah. We go around and we map them for invasive plants. And then we work with all the landowners who own the land that the invasive plants are on. And we contract with them to go out and remove for, for free of charge um, all the invasive plants on their land. Awesome. And we kind of do it strategically to try and pick areas where we're like effectively kind of like getting ahead of the invasive plants. Sure. So, like, if there's a source population way up high in the watershed, you want to go there first. If you do stuff below it, the seeds might end up spreading down there later and just uh-huh. recolonizing. So we've been doing that for a long time. That's been really good. Hey, do uh, man. Hey. <laughs> Thanks. And then... Um, Sorry again. No, you're all yeah, good. No worries. Well, it's pretty awesome that, that um, there's this kind of, you know, intermingling of, of the private and, and public yeah. interests, you know. I mean, obviously, I know that there's a fair bit of resistance for certain landowners in the in the area to be pretty protective and, and yeah. private in their life and, and, you know, feel like whatever, now that they bought yeah. that property, everything about it is there, yeah. is under their control, but obviously <laughs> it needs to be yeah. a bit more of a mutual, recipro- yeah. reciprocal relationship that way. And luckily some of these invasive plants, like pompous grass and arundo, they're pretty, like, annoying. (laughs) So they're kind of the things that people end up, like, paying to get out of their property a lot of times just because they don't look so great or they, like, cause issues. So it's a win-win for them. So if you're like, hey, like, we'll come to this for free, they're like, where do I sign? Yeah, totally. But there's always people who are, like, a little, you know, not in my my yard or whatever. So there's definitely some craft to, like, communicating and talking. Sure, some diplomacy involved, Yeah. 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 yeah, definitely. So, and then the other thing we've been doing for the last 25, 30 years is we do a lot of water quality measurements in the lagoon. Um, so it's kind of all the lagoons in San Diego have been really constrained by development. Mm. They all have Highway 101 goes across them all. The Amtrak train tracks go across them all. Highway 5 goes across them all. Yep. And like back before we had all these roads, they would kind of like clog up every once in a while and then the sandbars would break free and you'd have them outflowing out to the ocean right. and there was like kind of a big area they could do that in and when all these roads got built they ended up putting these teeny little bridges over the smallest part they possibly could at the spot that was like the most cost effective for building a road yeah. or a train track or sure. whatever and so yeah it kind of clogged up all these lagoons yeah. um, and really impeded the natural kind of tidal cycling where you get like the high tides coming in and the really low tides kind of flushing salt water sure. in and out um, which really kind of improves the water quality in the lagoon. So there's not as much stagnation mm-hmm. in the lagoon itself. Yeah. So we've been doing water quality measurements since bef- before there was anything to do to fix that problem in San Alejo. Yeah. And then about 15 years ago, we got an endowment to keep the river mouth open, which has helped a lot to kind of keep it flushing. And then right now we're doing a really big project in the lagoon where we're considering that we can't move the freeway or the train track or anything well, what could we do in the lagoon to kind of improve the hydrology and the water quality and kind of function as best it can, given the fact that it's in the middle of San Diego? Right, <laughs> so, right. And some component of that in terms of restoring the quality and the flow, like you said, the hydrology, um, it is also dredging some of the, the more stagnant uh, 
sediment, right, uh, out of the lagoon itself. Yeah, so the sediment that we're dredging onto the beach is actually, it's kind of like the second step in the process, which uh -huh. is kind of cool. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of, the first, like, few feet of material in the lagoon um, kind of doesn't belong in the beach, kind of just needs to, belongs in the lagoon. Yeah. Um, and so what we're doing to improve the water flow is we're making a lot of the channels a little deeper and wider and straighter so that the, the seawater can get farther up in yeah, and flush out. Yeah. And then we're removing, a, so there's some man-made barriers that we're able to remove to kind of let seawater get to areas it couldn't get right. in the last 50 years. Um, and so when we do all that, we end up kind of scraping around in the top few feet of the lagoon, and you end up with this whole pile of material that kind of need to put somewhere. Um, and so what we've done is we've dug a giant hole in the middle of the lagoon, because once you go down about three feet, for the next 200 feet down, it's just beach quality sand uh -huh. that kind of would have eventually made its way onto the beach. Right. But now that we have all these roads blocking it's it, it's kind of stuck. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, okay, well, that material naturally would have made it to the beach over right. a few generations. Right. So if we dig a hole, we can put that material on the beach. Now here's all this beach quality material that wasn't there. Right. And then we have this big hole that we then fill with all of the kind of material we scraped off the top of the lagoon in different spots. And we put it all in this big pit, and then that's going to be turned into an endangered um, bird nesting island at the awesome. end of the day. Yeah. And that stuff, um, like you said, just organically should be more in the lagoon than it should be on the beach, and that's mainly, I'm assuming, because of the constitution, the mineral constitution, or something like that. that yeah, sediment. it's just, it's not sand. So, right. yeah, like on the beach, sand grains, like all dirt has a certain size grain to it, and so sand grains are a little bigger than other types of dirt, and... Um, Basically, when the ocean's pretty dynamic, as you know, and it, the water moves around pretty fast, so anything that's really tiny grained sand or like silts and muds uh, just goes into suspension in the water, right. and then it just doesn't settle out. Right. So if you were to take so like the top enough. foot of material in the lagoon and put it in the ocean, it would just float around forever right. and move. It would, the ocean has enough energy in it to kind of keep that material up in the air. Right. Whereas sand is big enough that it kind of settles out um, and forms a beach. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's a perfect segue into um, to my next question, and, and honestly, is is a lot of what was kind of the nail in the coffin for getting me, or, or I'm sorry, getting you on here rather, <laughs> as soon as possible, uh, because a one it's current, but also because even just as of a couple hours ago this morning, I had an amazing <laughs> session at a undisclosed location here locally in North <laughs> County, and um, I sampled the goods, uh, the, the fruition yeah. of your work, and, and I gotta tell you, it's working, it's amazing, <laughs> I had a killer session, the best one I've had in years, and um, it's super cool, so um, I was wondering if maybe you could just tell us a little bit about this portion of the project, which is the sand restoration on the beach, and, and specifically speak to what you've been tasked with doing this last <laughs> year here, and um, which yeah. I'm sure is, is not as dreamy as it sounds, but from, from my understanding, <laughs> yeah, basically, uh, yeah. I don't know, tell us a little bit about the surfing component of that. Yeah, so I guess to so a bit part of this big project, uh, there's anytime you do development on the coast of California, you have to get a permit from the California Coastal Commission, mm -hmm. and you have to monitor all sorts of natural resources to make sure that first the project is always designed to not have any negative impacts to important resources, but then you always have to monitor also to make sure like well if there was an impact we would catch it and we'd be able to do something about it. Uh -huh. And so this project is the first time that the California Coastal Commission has included surfing as a really important resource that needs to be monitored. Um, and so I designed a project back in 2011 to try and, well, how would you monitor surfing 
appropriately so that you could make these decisions. Yeah. And they, the California Coastal Commission liked the ideas, and they decided that there was going to be one year of surf monitoring before any construction happened, and then all the sand is going on the beach, and then we monitor the surfing for another year after construction to see, basically, did the sand have any impact on the surfing. Right. So um, you get to keep surfing. So I got to keep surfing, yeah. <laughs> and so the way I do it is I have a GPS device that is mounted on my surfboard, and I have 10 set spots that go surfing, three of which are up coast from the project far enough that there's no impact from the sand possible. So you get a control because, mm-hmm. I mean, the waves are variable, super variable. Sure. So that way you can kind of tease out natural variability from maybe an impact from the sand. Uh-huh. And then I have seven surf spots that are within the footprint of potential impacts from the sand. And I go out surfing there as well. And the idea is to surf all 10 of those spots like 10 plus times in the year when it's really good at different sizes. So like kind of good small days, which is normally what we have. Yeah. And then the few, <laughs> the good bigger days. days. And then from that, you can find out a lot of cool stuff, like kind of like use the GPS data to figure out where the takeoff zones are for each of the surf breaks, um, kind of how long the waves are that you ride, the angle they break relative to the beach, and generate some pretty kind of overview statistics of where the waves break and kind of how long they're breaking for. Mm-hmm. And then I also kind of count, count all the surfers of all the spots and the type of surfers. And the idea is, well, when the sand comes through, did like the type of to become a longboarding spot when it was a shortboarding spot are people still surfing there are way more people surfing at some spot that was they weren't before because it's better people stop surfing somewhere um, and then with the GPS data it's like okay did the takeoff zones change like are you catching waves in a very different spot now right um, or are you catching them for a much longer shorter period of time and that's basically the gist of it wow so yeah it's super so, cool yeah I mean, on a very reductive level, but but essentially you're getting paid to go surf. Getting and, and, paid to go surf. And pay attention to the wave quality. Yeah. And and obviously then once you gather the data, give feedback and advise the engineering corporations on how best to make the best waves. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So for all those of you listening out there, you can be sure to thank Timbo Stillinger for uh, <laughs> your next awesome shred sesh. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> and it's cool. It's like the they've done a lot of beach replenishment projects in San Diego over the years. And there was one, like, fifth... that really matters, like, kind of, like, how big the sand is. And so this project's really nice because the sand is from here. So it's the same sand as on the beach. Right. But if you've gone surfing, like, around the world, you'll notice, like, the sand is very different on different beaches. Sure. And the beaches look super different. Yeah. And so in the past, they've put sand on the beach in San Diego that wasn't from the beach here. And it really changed the beach. Yeah. Um, and so this project's cool because it's, like... The sand is natural and it's from here. It's the same, so yeah, it's curious. It'll be interesting, but maybe there'll be an impact. Everything's been designed so it won't be, but we've created this way you can go monitor the surfing. So if yeah. people do a project somewhere else, yeah, they can help inform them on what they should do. Right. So, and I mean, I could be wrong here, but it seems like the Coastal Commission, being you know so so keen or at least open to sign off on on the surfing component of this, is is very indicative of them taking surfing seriously in terms of its economic impact, you know, for tourism both seasonally and throughout the year. And I just think that's a really cool sign that, you know, I mean, I've heard terms thrown around like surfonomics and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, I know that there's a couple universities that are doing studies and looking yeah. at the impacts of surf tourism on local economies and stuff like that. This is something, obviously, it's a very large economy here, but it yeah. certainly is also a very significant component of the lifestyle that drives a lot of the tourism, as well as obviously the residents and why they want to live here. So seems like they're taking it seriously yeah and i mean man it's definitely 
people are like living here. <laughs> they keep showing up. Yeah. So yeah, <laughs> sure and it's yeah. everyone. Yeah, it's uh, it's really cool. I mean, San Diego is unique too in that the waves are so accessible. Like you don't have to be really good to go have a good time. Uh huh. It's like very, it's a very welcoming spot to go surfing. So in that right. sense, it's like there's just a wide crowd of people that really enjoy it. Yeah. Love it and use the beaches. Such a cool. Yeah. Such a cool transition to have the yeah. municipalities finally recognizing yeah. the importance of this stuff. Totally. And yeah. like if you go back like to when we were kids, like there used to not even be sand on the beaches here. Right. There's just cobbles Cobblestones, right? Yeah. Just all cobbles. Always just. Yeah. loads of cobblestone just, rocks yeah. so even from people who just like walking on the beach or hanging out on the beach like there weren't beaches here a while yeah. ago yeah places so, with the family the yeah. kids whatever yeah so, place to play yeah that's really cool yeah um, well I saw you a few weeks back and we were talking about um, this portion of your project and we were kind of laughing about how there's been a lot of uh emerging concerns or rumblings from the various parking lot peanut galleries and, and uh, lot lizards who are like looking at the water color and they're going oh god you know like yeah. oh it's super poopy it's super chocolatey like I don't know it's sketchy and uh, we were kind of joking about the irony of that in the sense that you know these waterways are very we're very blessed to have the setup we do in terms of the water quality coming out of these waterways and um, maybe you can just explain a little bit to us why that is really misleading to be referencing the color <laughs> yeah. of the water in this case and and specifically why it's more the opposite yeah totally yeah so the color a lot of it is when they that what I was talking about a while ago about how the size of the, the sand particles yep. matters and so when they're dredging the sand out of the lagoon there is like one to two percent of the material is this really fine mm -hmm. silts and clays that just stay suspended in the water right and so while they're pumping sand on the beach that the area nearby the water does look very brown right um, right and then also some of the if the water comes out of the pipe so the way they dredge sand is they mix it's about 80 percent water and 20 percent sand they make this really big kind of wet slurry uh -huh. and they suck it up with a huge pipe and pump it out on the beach wow. so if you ever like watch the watch sand getting pumped on a beach yeah. it looks like kind of a fire hose right because it's mostly they're using water basically to move it because it Shh. makes it way more efficient to, to move keep it. the motion fluid. Yep. Yeah. Then having dump trucks like driving all over the place. Yeah. yeah. And so that water, the sand comes out of the pipe kind of already suspended in water. And then a lot of it just takes like a little bit to kind of settle out too. Uh -huh. So, and the fact, right. So for this project, they're pumping about 24 hours a day, six days a week. So if you ever come down like on Sunday evenings, they haven't, they stop on Sundays. And so by Sunday evening, if you look at the beach, you usually notice it's way less turbid. So it's just the fact that they're kind of pumping all the time. There's always some stuff kind of suspended, and as yeah. soon as they stop, it kind of clears it's time out. Time to settle, yeah. yeah, and sort itself out. Yep. And and you were telling me again to the irony piece about how realistically these these you know marshlands and wetlands are are kind of like the kidneys. I mean, they're, yeah. they're there to filter out exactly you know all sorts of bad stuff that would otherwise be polluting the waters. Yeah, yeah. So the lagoons and the wetlands around here really do act as kind of the final filter before all the runoff from our watersheds get out into the lineup for surfing. Right. And so the fact, having a, a lagoon that functions well is really important for maintaining high water quality because a lot of the plants and the benthic invertebrates do act to really filter and clean that water that's coming down the watershed um, and also slow down the flow. So a lot of it is like when we build cities, we tend to create a lot of impervious surfaces like parking lots and rooftops concrete, and streets and yeah. concrete yeah. so whenever it rains a lot of that water instead of soaking into the ground and kind of filtering through the groundwater it just runs off and then it runs down into the rivers and streams and out into the lagoons and so 
a lot of times you just want kind of a big natural area where the water can kind of soak in and filter through before it goes out into the ocean. And so these wetlands really act as kind of a, like a kidney is a really good way to put it, but a, yeah. a filter so when the water does get out to the ocean, it's a lot better. You can go, like you can surf at Carter Free. Right. You don't get sick. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. So, I mean, you shouldn't and, really surf anywhere, like, after it rains really hard. Sure. But that's just because there's so much material that's yeah. been piling up on the, the yeah. roads and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and like you said, Cryer Free, that's a perfect example. I mean, the, the you know, the poo bank, like, that's yeah. that's a notable, you know, <laughs> yeah. uh, name for, you know, stuff that we automatically associate with being really dirty and yeah. sketchy and unhealthy and stuff like that. Yeah, but everything that's making the water quality, like, bad when it rains is stuff that's on, like, the streets and the roads right. and your people's backyards. Sure. So it's nothing from the lagoon. Like, everything the lagoon's doing is just improving the water quality. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like, in a way, a lot of these concerns that, like I said, I've, I've heard anecdotally from, you know, the surf community and stuff in, in recent months are in a way a bit of a metaphor for how little we're really understanding as surfers about the entire ecosystem of waterways you know and it seems like you know we're, we're getting pretty good i think as a population surfers are and and whatever coastal you know patrons are of appreciating issues that are impacting the shoreline you know things like trash and stuff like yeah. that washing the beach and that's i think in part because you know you, you see it it's right there you you walk from your car at the road across the beach and you see trash or whatever it is or you see oil coming up or something yeah. like that and so there's all this you know great activism and, and work which is very important and needs to be done but you know surfers and, and other groups who are related seem so impassioned about this stuff and yet they have no understanding of this of this upstream source you know of this like you know what's happening east you know yeah. and so I guess like what do you think that we can do to support or encourage, you know, any of these demographics to become a little, little less um, tunnel vision towards the west here, you know, and a little bit more aware of the 180 view and looking kind of to the source rather than like treating the symptom, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'd say follow following the water is a really interesting way to like go out hiking or exploring and like just something to keep in the back of your head when you're going to spot. A lot of people who surf, they they go up and they go camping or they have friends who live inland a bit and you're usually not thinking about surfing when you're doing that kind of stuff right but um if you start thinking about like well where's the water flowing while you're doing these things you can start to see the connections between different landscapes sure. different parts of the landscape um and yeah like the water water is what moves the most around the world so like there's actually satellites around the earth that measure how gravity changes like in different areas of the earth from like annually and based on water levels like so in the, the big, atmosphere the heaviest thing that moves into different parts of the earth is water I mean it's moving around all over the place oh yeah so you're saying by just sheer uh, the, the, the weight of the matter in water yep is the heaviest element yeah so well no so water water's heavy and then it's very mobile. So water right. water is the only one of the only elements that exists naturally on Earth in like a liquid, solid, and gaseous stage. Right. And so um, there's kind of two. There's a lot of energy that hits the Earth from the sun, and then that energy, the way that it kind of can move around the Earth system, is usually through water. So like right. so when water evaporates, paper. energy goes up into it, and then it blows somewhere else, and then it condenses and precipitates out, and that right. energy is now in that new spot. Right. But the water is like is is heavy and it's moving all over the place. Right. And so, um, 
whenever you have water, like when you have water, if it rains up in the mountains and the water comes down through the rivers and out to the ocean, the water is what's moving and there's a lot of stuff in that water too. So there's a lot of sediment. There's like rocks and boulders and grains of sand and like the sandbar that you surf on. Yeah. Like there's a reason that the sand is the size it is at the beach there. And then when you go up farther in the watershed, it's like bigger boulders and mm-hmm. bigger rocks that aren't that small yet. Sure. Um, and then same with like the pollutants and nutrients in the soils and stuff. Like they move through the ecosystem usually in water as yeah. it flows around and stuff. So I've always found like if you think about water, whenever you're somewhere, you can connect different landscapes to each other pretty pretty well. Yeah. Start to kind of yeah. form a picture of like, oh, how it all kind of works together. Yeah. And that's a very yeah. literal explanation for the more metaphorical aspects of why I've themed the podcast the way it is, in the sense that we are all connected by water. Yeah. Um, you know, figuratively and literally. And um, it's, yeah, it's everywhere. It's omnipresent for us. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Some people spend their whole lives just studying water. Right. It's a pretty, it's the reason we're all here. Really. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope to get yeah. all the people studying it. Yeah. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. That's a lot of why I'm excited to, uh, to have these more empirically driven topics you know because there is so much science that can speak to this stuff that we in a you know more kind of uh ethereal way experience it in direct sense for us you know when we see the end results of it but there's a lot of science behind it yeah yeah that's awesome well um for those of us who are listening that would like to be able to contribute more to become more aware or to become more involved in supporting their local ecosystems and, and waterways and making that sustainability effort a little more successful what what are some resources or recommendations you can make to people? Yeah, so at the San Alejo Lagoon Conservancy, we do weekly volunteer events um, with the, Joe DeWolf as our volunteer coordinator, um, and he's awesome, and that's probably one of the better ways to just kind of get your foot in the door. Sure. And all his projects are really fun. Um, do work. Most of our work is in the lagoon, um, and then he's a great resource, too, for them finding like other opportunities outside of the lagoon. Um, and then honestly, I'd recommend just like going on a hike. Yeah. <laughs> Anywhere, yeah. really. Yeah, just go check around. it out. Yeah, just check it out. Yeah, get some so, dirt under the nails. Yeah. And probably on a non-local scale, just contacting whatever your local, you know, conservancy equivalent would be. Yep. And just asking them, right? Yeah, and a lot of times, like, there's people do all sorts of community restoration events in different counties around California. Right. Um, and it's a great way to meet people and to, usually the people that lead those are pretty knowledgeable and they're usually quite happy to just... If you have questions you might think are stupid questions, they're probably not, and they probably have right. a good answer for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and whatever questions you have are representative of a much broader population that yeah. probably has the same exactly. questions or concerns. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, I've got a couple of signature questions I'm working on, and the uh, first one is, what is your earliest memory of water? My earliest memory of water? Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> My earliest memory of ocean water would be when I was a little kid my dad would tie his surfboard up to the posts on the 101 bridge at Cardiff Mouth when the lagoon was draining uh-huh. so the board would be like stuck uh-huh. in the flow yeah, and then I'd just stand on it and like surf in the <laughs> river mouth that's so cool <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen anyone do that yeah that's so rad yeah that's killer I've always we've, I've joked about that with people about setting up a, a mooring in a lineup with crazy currents, you know, yeah. like being able to just hold on. Yeah, just hold. Yeah, yeah I mean, steady. when you're little, you weigh like what forty pounds. Yeah, so. yeah. So you were shredding. Yeah, I was just like, having a good time. It's downhill since then. That's, yeah, right. <laughs> it's never been so big or so yeah. glorious. Yeah, no, no. that's awesome. Uh, and my second question is, what's one thing that water and or the ocean has taught you in your life? that you would say has better enabled you to surf the waves of life? Ooh. 
Um, I'd say probably the the what I've learned the most from the ocean is like you gotta just be really passionate about wanting to do something and then just stick with it. And there's everything has a learning curve, so I think surfing is an especially good representation of that. In that, it's probably one of the harder things to like actually be able to like do. <laughs> Even to start, like, you, you try surfing the first time even as a kid, and you just get throttled yeah. <laughs> for quite a while. And then you think you know what you're doing, and you realize you still pretty much suck. It's very humbling, <laughs> For, yes. like, a few years, like, a long time. <laughs> so it's just one of those things, it's like, you gotta always have that passion to be better at something, and, like, enjoy the process of improving more so than maybe being bummed if you're not the best at something, or wishing you were better, mm. but just kind of always striving to, like keep trying and keep at it and like just consistency matters a lot and then kind of enjoying the process of improving and learning as opposed to like thinking too far ahead or thinking about it in the wrong frame of mind is really important just like your context of everything you're doing yeah yeah oh, i like that that's a good one <laughs> yeah. yeah well right on thanks yeah, dude. dude that was really awesome appreciate you coming on yeah um take, appreciate you taking the time and walking up a little trail here above seaside to get a little view while we're at it oh so good <laughs> That's going to do it for our show today, everybody. If you enjoyed what you heard in your time with us, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. You can find our episodes there or on SoundCloud and Stitcher. If you were turned on by anything in today's episode, please take the time to tell a friend or a loved one about the show. It's listener recommendations and support from people like you that make this show possible. If you think the show deserves to grow and or adds value to your life, you can contribute to your support by donating on Patreon an easy-to-use crowdfunding platform for creators such as myself. If you're interested in any of the guests or topics covered in the episode, you can find further information about them in the show notes section on iTunes or in the blog posts on our website. Lastly, if you have any thoughts or questions or feedback, any ideas for future guests or topics, you can reach out to me directly at our website at www.offshoreinsightspod.com. That's offshoreinsights followed by the letters P-O-D.com. Today, I leave you with a song by Claus Creative called Summertime Road Trip. Until next time, be well, keep in touch, and enjoy the ride.